Hello, everyone. My name is Mark Vina, and welcome to the Smart Tech Check podcast, where we cover all tech topics that are smart home, home, home automation, security, and console gaming related. Today is uh, Thursday, May 20th, 2021. I hope all of you continue to be safe and well. Got lots of interesting tech stuff to talk about. Um, uh, so without any further ado, let me bring up my uh, three amigos here. Let me uh, unmute them because I always have a lot to say and it's always easy to hear them when we're on, uh, off mute. So we've got Rob, uh, Rob Picarero, um, uh, Picarero, I should say. Don't want Rob, I can mangle your name and that's always a mistake. Um, Rob has written for uh, USA Today and uh, Fast Times and uh, he's been a frequent Fast visitor. Company. Fast Company. You know what happens when you start drinking in the morning. This is exactly <laughs> what um, we've got uh, John Quang, who writes for the New York Times and uh, in other publications. And John, welcome to the podcast. John, are you there? Is John there? John, are you there? No, I have to leave. Uh, no, 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 no. I hear, Starlink, I hear. Is, Starlink is dropping me. So that will be my post for this podcast. Starlink. Beta, very much in beta. <laughs> <laughs> we will do a podcast on Starlink because you have not have have not had the best of luck. And then we've got have a great show. one of my favorite uh, journalists, Stuart Walpin, who uh, writes for Twice uh, for Laptop uh, Laptop Magazine. Correct, uh, Stuart? Or whatever. I haven't written for a lot. No, uh, Techlicious, uh, U.S. News and World Report, um, and, uh, Investopedia, and. I do historical work for CTA, and um, I drive my wife crazy. <laughs> I'm a professional at that, too. Well, you know, the, the question I do have to ask you as we see John fade into the cyber uh, ether uh, over here, um, what did you think about the, uh, about the Yankees game last night? Corey Kluber, no you hitter. Know, it, it's really funny. I've, I've seen one no hitter, and um, you're always as a home fan watching the visiting team throw a no hitter. You're as a fan, you're always having a mixed reaction. You don't want your team to lose. You certainly don't want your team to get no hit. But at the same time, as a fan, how often do you get to see a no hitter? Right. So, um, so having been at the the Texas side of that equation, having seen the Mets no hit by a guy named Heston for the Giants about three or four years ago, I, you know, you're, my wife said, well, how do you feel about, you know, watching the no-hitter? And it's sort of like you're in the stands from the home team watching your – it was very odd. Happy for Kluber. <clears throat> Unhappy for me because I had Kluber on my fantasy team and dropped him because he got off to a bad start. And so now somebody else is gaining the benefit of that no-hitter. Well, the only thing I'll say in this because I want to get into the topics we talked about is that I thought uh, uh, Dr. Fauci probably would be having a heart attack at the end because there's a bunch of sweaty guys jumping on top jumping of each, each other, which is what typically happens at the end of a new uh, no hitter. And um, so that and, and by the way, the stadium was packed last night because that game was in, in Arlington and uh, they don't have the restrictions on attendance. So I thought that was interesting. Um, but um, I have to ask my fellow Washington Nationals fan. Rob, what did you think of the uh, no-hitter? Because you have to give some love to the Yankees. Can you uh, do that for me? You know, it's so many no – it's like six so far this season. That is yes, not – I mean, I've definitely been in the stands for one in my entire life, and that's over oh, wow. a sample set of hundreds of games. And I've seen, like, one, like, naturally happen on TV, not because I got an alert from the MLB app or whatever. But now apparently it's like, you know, bobblehead day at the park. You know, it's going to be really interesting to find out what, I mean, there's a lot of speculation what the reasons for uh, reasons are, but like you said, this is like, 
it's so you'll know this. The, the what's in 1969, the year of the, uh, the 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 pitcher. 1968 was the year of the pitcher before they raised the mound. <laughs> McLean right. won 30 games. Lowered they lowered the mound after right. that. Right, exactly, and, and and only one um, batter batted over 300 that year, wasn't it? Alex Johnson? Yes, that's I pretty. I think cool. he hit 301 for the Angels. I I don't don't quote me on that. I believe it was for the Angels, and I believe he won the batting title with a 301 batting average. Well, as as the audience can tell, we could talk about baseball forever, but let's hit some of the tech <laughs> topics here that we that um, I am sure my comrades here will have lots to talk about. Uh, first of all, very quickly, the cancellation of IFA that happened yesterday. Um, I'm actually pretty devastated because I know that the bars and the pubs in in uh, in Berlin will be, you know, obviously losing a lot of bit of revenue because you, Stuart, and and you, Rob, will not be there. Hot, that was an inside joke, but because I don't think you guys do drink a lot of beer. From baseball to inside baseball. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's funny because I was really holding out hope that, that it was going to happen. Um, not surprising, you know, MW, uh, Mobile Congress have had issues and um, other, uh, there really hasn't been, you know, it's in our space, it's been a continued problem. No events are going on. Still holding out that e that CES is um, going to happen. And I've heard through some of my sources that uh, uh, booth space is actually getting snapped up pretty quickly. So that's, uh, that's mm -hmm. uh, at least tech companies are being somewhat optimistic. But any quick thoughts on that, uh, on that topic? I was really surprised to see IFA Baggett because, I mean, Looking at the location alone, Germany has been out vaccinating basically mm. the entire rest of the European Union. Uh, you know, they, they're doing the right things and, and certainly looking from, you know, not where they're at now, where they're already at like almost 40 percent with at least mm -hmm. one dose. But early September, I was going to say right in the ballpark, they should be where they ought to be, along with most of the rest of the EU. Right. MWC is still steaming along, even though that is barely four weeks from now. And everyone right. is bailed on it. I mean, what, with, is it a wireless trade show if Samsung is only appearing virtually? And a friend of mine pointed out, well, look, Spain needs tourism money a whole lot more than Germany does, which is why you also see like uh, Greece and Croatia saying, come on over, Americans, please spend some money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm actually a bit surprised for the exact that rationale. You think by the time September rolls around late August that Germany would be in very good shape to handle a major event like that. And I think it would be terrific, not just great for the industry, but tell the world, hey, by the way, if you've been vaccinated, get out. You know, the, the world is And they back. did EFA in person, like on a really small yeah. scale last September. Yes. So that that's is, weird. They canceled in the second year of the pandemic. Right. And that was before the, the vaccine was even available. So that, that's yeah. uh, interesting. Stuart, any thoughts real quick? Yeah, I was quite frankly, when I saw the alert that they were doing IFA, I said there is no way on the on on God's green earth that they are going to do this show. I have a friend in Germany who I'm in fairly regularly contact with who lives in Berlin, and he says they're they're continually shutting down all the time. Um, that he only got vaccinated because he's diabetic, um, but the city is not in good shape according to him. And when I first saw that they were, so when I saw the notice yesterday that they were canceling, I went, there's the other shoe. It was not a surprise to me 
whatsoever. I was stunned that they had projected that they were going to be able to do this. And I thought it was just a matter of time before they decided to shut it down. Because it's not only what the conditions are in Germany. This is a European show. And a lot of European countries are probably even worse off than Germany. As Rob mentioned, that Germany is sort of inoculating the rest of the, the continent. And Germany is not in good shape. Berlin is not in good shape. So I was very surprised that they did it to begin with. And so when I saw that they had canceled, I went, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess in some ways not a surprise, but hopefully uh, we'll get better news as we get to the end of the year with, e- uh, with CES. I'm, you know, I'm not a big fan of going to CES because I've been going for 20 years and it's crazy, but I kind of miss crowds. So we'll see, we'll see, yep. we'll see what happens here. Uh, the ongoing fun. And I use that term, uh, you know, very carefully uh, with the, ep- uh, the, right. ap- the Apple epic trial, because it has been epic. And, you know, and again, you know, I think I said this in the podcast last week, what's fascinating to me about these big trials and you guys must love this stuff is the stuff that comes out from because of discovery and emails. Uh, it's just mind blowing. And, but in this last week, there was a lot of testimony that was really interesting. Um, there was, and again, I, I'm sure you guys are following it. Uh, um, Phil Schiller made a comment, which the media has picked up, uh, that the Apple um, App Store, which I believe, and Rob, keep me honest here, I think it's $12 billion in business, if I'm, I'm not mistaken, $12, 13000000000 It's a very small number. Ballpark, Ballpark. you know, it's a small yeah. country's GDP. Yeah, yeah you, that's the cost of one of your boondoggle vacations when you take the family out. But <laughs> that, that they, the app that he, Phil, Phil Schiller, who's retired, he, he is retired. He's um, uh, now a um, kind of an honorary member at Apple, but he was there for Apple a long period of time. An Apple fellow. Um, he made a statement that he doesn't, he didn't know, or, and I assume he speaks for the management team, that they don't know if the Apple uh, app store is profitable which I thought was a interesting statement. I'm sorry, you what? The app store was not profitable. They don't <laughs> oh. know whether it makes money or not, you know? And as someone who's worked in the, in, you know, for some very big companies and have managed fairly large P&Ls, not 12 billion, but you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. I can assure you that if I told the CEO, I don't know <laughs> if my business is profitable or not, you know, I don't know if I would have been, you know, general manager uh, very long. So Rob, you're smiling. Any, any comments on your, on your, from so, your end? Yeah, this week's my favorite thing was Craig Federighi being yes. uh, saying someone asked him about what about Mac OS where, yes, there is the Mac app store, but you can also download stuff from the web. And he said, oh, you know, the, the security is not where we want it to be. You know, mm-hmm. iOS is saying anyone can operate Mac OS as a car. And oh, uh, guys, my license is downstairs. I, I, I'm using this Mac right now. Hang on a sec. I got to get it. So right. the Apple cops don't bust me for <laughs> using a Mac without a license. Um, yeah, like that's a funny thing to say. Um, well, and I, and I, and I just, a bunch of putting well, and, just, and just to jump in real quick, I interpreted that storyline and, and and you have to really, I, you know, I haven't really listened to the, the you know, read the transcript or saw the test because you got, you got to read it to get the proper context. But the story that I read, and I think I read it on Apple Insider, it came across to me as if he was criticizing the Mac OS people. Or, you know, so if I'm in charge of the Mac OS, I'm pretty feeling pretty bad. Oh, you know, iOS is bulletproof and, you know, Mac OS is, you know, full of, full of Swiss cheese like holes. But I'm, I'm sure he, it wasn't really positioned quite like that. I think he was trying to contrast the difference between the robustness of, uh, of an ARM-based architecture uh, that's, of course, controlled by Apple and a open-ended um, operating system like Mac OS. Although it's not quite as open as Windows, it's still a very much open operating system. Stuart? 
Well, I was I was also struck by the Federighi um, testimony, and, and obviously, what what's reported, it's difficult to really tell context from the from the the, the quoted snippets without actually hearing him do it. I'm not surprised that he quote unquote threw Mac OS under the bus. I mean what Apple is defending is iOS, which I gotta believe is obviously a lot more profitable. Hell iPhone is is, is almost I wouldn't say the entire company, but it, it represents I think I saw the last the front was just around fifty percent of the company's revenues. So and and Mac is not that big a piece. I mean it's I think number four um, I think Apple's number four or number five, a PC PC seller. So it doesn't surprise me that he's going to defend iOS, uh, which is Apple's huge golden pot, against the Mac, which is, relatively speaking, a nice little hobby. Right. Um, so it, it, that doesn't surprise me. But, I mean, this speaks the entire trial is I think much more than simply Apple versus Epic and really does, and it's something that I think the entire industry is wrestling with in the sort of the way that the country or even society wrestles with security versus privacy issues. In other words, what do you give up to get to the, to the other side? Right. And the, the iOS argument has always been against Android, that you're safer on iOS because they curate everything. So the question is, what do you give up? Now, I think there. I don't think it's a zero-sum game here. I think the big issue is how much is Apple blackmailing these vendors for? And I think at this point, Apple has got to has got to defend their overcharging essentially, and um, and and so they're going to do anything they can to defend that because anything else looks like a defeat to them. That, right. in, in my view, right. Well, you know, honestly, you know, and I want to move on to the next topic I, I, because this is really worth actually a deeper dive because I, I think that if you look at this trial in a much more expanded 50,000 foot macro level, it really is a trial about the future of Apple from a business model standpoint and other companies by extension. You know, you know, can, can Apple do what they're doing to protect their their wall garden, their wonderful wall garden, um, the 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 the. the uh, the, the, you called it blackmail. I think that's very, uh, very strong language, to be very honest with you. But um, you know, the, the, the rates that they charge to maintain the store, and they, of course, they would defend it vigorously. But you know, I agree with both of the comments that you guys are making. And it will be interesting to see as this comes to a – actually, I really wish we were doing the podcast tomorrow because Tim Cook is taking the stand yes. you know, tomorrow. And, uh, and apparently he's been practicing, as he should – with lots of seasoned ex-prosecutors, if I if I have if I read some of the commentary, um, uh, the coverage accurate. So I think tomorrow will be fascinating to see what uh, Mr. Cook has to say. But let's move on to the next topic, and that is um, I hope you guys caught this. Microsoft canceled Windows 10X, um, and did, uh, I'm familiar. I'm 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 assuming Stuart and Rob, you know what Windows 10X is. Mm -hmm. It's not Windows okay. 10 RT, but it is the same sort yeah. of lineage. You never, you never say RT. You say RT around. <laughs> it was, it's their version of of Chrome. Yeah, yeah. And look, of and Google Chrome. And yet the lightweight OS. Right. You know, it's all kind of like when you hear the Melinda um, Gates, Bill Gates saga stuff, and uh, you know, people talk to me about it. You know, who are not in the industry, you just bring up Microsoft Bob, and that to me just kind of shuts the conversation down right off the bat yeah. because I was, I was at Compaq and working with Microsoft on that. Um, 
on that illustrious uh, product <laughs> back then. But uh, what's, see, what's interesting to me about it, just to give you my quick uh, 10 seconds on this, is that um, this is more proof, um, more proof that how tough it is for even a big company like Apple, with uh, like Microsoft, with Windows, which is still the predominant operating system, to change usage model, change usage model habits. I mean, there's they, they've um, debuted these these uh, book form factors. Now that foldable displays are becoming more um, uh, practical, uh, the the, the um, uh, from from a durability standpoint, uh, that I think they're getting closer to where they need to be, so they don't you know they don't crack in half when you open them three or four times. I'm sure the cost will be coming down. I mean, the world will be able to adopt from a technology platform standpoint, these foldable form factors. And in part, Windows 10X was supposed to address that new usage model, but there must be some, uh, there obviously some must be some, um, uh, some uh, sense within Microsoft that maybe users are not that interested, frankly, in changing their habits, which would not surprise me. I mean, God knows, look at Apple. Apple still has not adopted touch on in Mac OS. So what are your thoughts on that, the cancellation? I'll start with Stuart. Well, a couple of things. Microsoft, even from the beginning, was never great at innovating operating systems. Um, um, oh, I, they, I, I should beat my horn just for that effect, for, the, for that slight <laughs> you just gave to Microsoft, Stuart. I'm only kidding. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I still have a, 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 a sticker on my, on my desktop shows you how old my desk is that the windows 95 equals macintosh 89 um and every time that microsoft has tried to do an operating system both on the desktop mobile with um um uh, mobile windows um and 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 varying up they just they always seem to follow somebody else and they try to do and and the same thing with Windows 10X, which is their version of Google Chrome, essentially. And the use of the foldable screen on the Neo that they were, which they have also now canceled, just looks so much like a, we can, we're doing it because we can, not because we should. Yes. And I think that is such a typical tra trap for all technology companies since the beginning of time that they see a new technology and they decide they need to push something out there just because they can, not necessarily because they should. And I think that people, to a certain extent, recognize when a company is following instead of leading. I mean, there are ways of following that you can still be innovative and still Get, you know, bring something to the party. And I don't know that Windows 10X was a vast improvement on Google Chrome or gave anybody a reason to switch because it wasn't only about the ease of the operating system, but also the cost of the hardware. So I'm, I'm, again, I, I, it's just that to me, Microsoft has never been a great leader in terms of operating systems. So just the latest example. Rob, your thoughts? So I got to disagree a little bit there. I, I do subscribe to that the idea that microsoft trying to compete with chrome os is just not going to work because with chrome os is not just that it's a simple interface uh doesn't need a whole lot of hardware it's also like no maintenance and and windows definitely a maintenance kind of required os that's part of the deal but i do want to give microsoft credit for doing the thing that apple has failed to do despite all the growth of touch interfaces and it's and this other operating system itself which is integrate touch throughout Windows 10. It's a really natural thing. It allows for this form factor of the two-in-one convertible laptop that Apple doesn't think anybody actually wants. 
and Microsoft, they, they did that on their own. And granted, when they first put touch into the OS and Windows 8, it was not, not quite a lovable experience, but they kept at it. It, it wasn't, certainly wasn't elegant, but, uh, but you know, Rob, the, and, and this is a terrific topic to talk about. The only observation I'd make is that my, if Microsoft was on the podcast right now, they would tell, hey, we've had tremendous success. The world has accepted touch in clamshell notebooks because 95% of the notebooks sold today have touch built into them. I can assure you that when you look into the data analytics, because they do track that data, the data is tracked in the, in, in the operating system at an aggregate level. The percentage of people that are actually taking advantage of touch you know, in a clamshell notebook form factor is a lot lower. Just because the technology is there doesn't mean people are absolutely using it. The market moved there. And, and I think, you know, that's what I think the point Apple would make. Now, Apple, of course, you know, they could be doing a head fake around this. I'm actually writing a piece about this uh, for um, uh, Forbes tomorrow. But, you know, honestly, um, you know, I, from a usage model standpoint, I'm not saying people don't use touch in a clamshell notebook uh, type of configuration, but the gorilla arm phenomenon, which is a significant one, it, it's, not as, um, it's not as convenient as I think that Microsoft would like, like you to believe. But that's, you know, that's just my thought. And it will be interesting to see what Apple announces at WWDC. You know, will, will they bring both operating systems together? Will they bring iOS and, and Mac OS like together? Yeah. So you're so, talking about just open closed, but not convertible, not two in one? Well, for lack of a better phrase, ha, ha, run, being able to run Mac OS or a Mac OS-like operating system on the iPad, on a, on, on a tablet. You know, so and I and you know it's funny. The tomorrow the new iPad Pro show up uh, with the M1 built into it, and I saw an early review, and some person just said that the the performance is phenomenal, yada yada yada. But it, it, the hardware for the first time seems to be ahead of the head of the software, which you generally don't hear a lot about. So it'll, it'll be interesting to uh, uh, hear There's more all the about. People who want to have Mac OS on an iPad, but sorry, you need to have your license to use Mac OS on an iPad. It's a car, not a computer. That's yeah, <laughs> you could you two could work for Apple, Rob. <laughs> Rob, you watched I, I watched Google I/O yesterday, but I'm sure you did. Um, any thoughts on Google I/O? Yeah, so lots of news there. Most of it involving Android 12, which I did successfully put on this uh, Pixel 4 XL loaner phone. I think AT&T forgot that they sent me. Um, very interesting to see this continued sort of uh, competition and you know, convergent evolution, if you will, between Apple and Google in the area of privacy, where, you know, one year Apple says, okay, you're, you can tell apps that you can only have your location while they're in the foreground. Google adds that. Apple says you can only, you can give an app only your vague location on your precise GPS coordinates. Google is adding that permission back in, which long ago was a permission you could set back when you would install an Android app. And when you installed it, you'd have to accept the permissions it asked for mm. instead of when it would actually want to use those features of the phone. Um, in general, it's more of this pivot towards privacy that Google started unrolling two years ago at the last in-person I.O., which it's interesting. And because Apple, their whole line of business is they sell you hardware and then they charge you again for services to run on that hardware. Google sells ads. And so they don't want to blow that up. And so many of the features in Android 12 are about protecting you from the apps on your phone, not necessarily making your phone less useful as a source for data that Google can then turn into ads, ad sales later on. 
Uh, and on the web, their messaging is really kind of incomplete. They, they have said conclusively, which they didn't say two years ago, you know, we're getting rid of third-party cookies. The, that cross-site tracking, we're not going to do it. We're not going to let anyone else do it. But the measures that would replace it, that would essentially, as I understand most of these, your copy of Chrome would sort of do its own on-device processing, federated learning, as Google puts it. Uh, you know, what kind of interest do I have? And then it would sort of fuzz them out with some differential privacy equations, then upload that in an anonymized encrypted form. So Google would still have data it could provide for advertisers, which there are some competitive concerns because tracking cookies as gross as they are, anyone can use them. This system, this privacy sandbox seems like it'd be very much a Google only proposition. And on the other hand, if all the other browsers, uh, Safari, Firefox, Edge, are going in the direction of not allowing cross-site tracking and also not supporting privacy sandbox. I don't know. Um, you know, overall, I think it would be better for the web if Google made a little less money and was a little less dominant in ads. So maybe that will happen. Uh, but for the most part, their announcements at IO, I'm more interested and uh, looking forward to seeing what they can do in Android than what this next version of Chrome is going to be like. Right. Stuart. Well, I'm, I, every time I see something about Google and doing something about privacy, I, I, I flash all the way back to the beginning where Google's model was, don't be evil. Um, and almost throughout their evolution, they've sort of skirted around that to a certain extent, which is understandable. They're a corporation. They want to make money. I mean, they're a public company. They have to do that. Um, a couple of thoughts. Obviously, first thought is that what Apple has been doing with the privacy and because Apple doesn't make any money from ads necessarily, or that's not their business model anyway. Um, and so their system tends to be very proactive. In other words, it pops up and tells you, do you want to be followed or not? Whereas the Android, uh, at least on Android, I'm not, I don't know about how this is going to work in Chrome, but on the Android side, you actually have to go into the settings and figure out what you want to do with your own privacy. So it's very reactive. Um, as opposed to what Apple is doing. The second thing, obviously, is that because Apple is a far more um, uh, unified uh, uh, ecosystem, that everybody is involved. When somebody upgrades their, their iPhone, for instance, 75% of, of users update their, their operating system within the first month or so of a new operating system being available. It's around 90% about three or four months later. Where in the Android world, phone, some phones simply cannot be upgraded to the new operating system and it's not as proactive it all depends upon which android phone you have and so as a result in the android world you only get a 20 percent or so 25 percent of users upgrading to the latest os so what google is doing appreciate it thanks but it's not going to seep as deep into the opera into the user base um, it will take years for these for these um, for these privacy efforts to take any kind of universal impact, simply because of how slow uh, or how low the upgrade rate is for Android users. Right. You know. You know. What I was struck by um, the event yesterday. Uh, just two things from a product standpoint. You know, they're obviously you know you know searches their business. Uh, um, I, I think Robert concur with this. They're doing some really interesting things with, with artificial intelligence to, <laughs> to make search much more naturalistic that you literally could, you know, almost how like we were talking before the podcast, we were talking about how from 2001, much more conversational where you ha don't have to be 
uh, declarative from a sentence standpoint. It can actually discern certain things from uh, two or three sentences, and they show the context. The, yeah, the, the the context piece, and of course that raises incredibly um, pertinent um, privacy issues because all of a sudden, if you've got this, these always on microphones that are listening to not just clips of conversations, but you know, 30, 45 seconds worth of conversations, you know, lots of good can happen, but also lots of bad can happen. So that kind of struck me that, uh, you know, they're still plowing forth um, very much with that. And the other thing that was kind of interesting, and uh, um, certainly both of you guys saw this, the way they broadcast it, which was, I believe, from like a courtyard outside of Mountain View. Did you did you see the broad with the Sundar? campus. Yeah. And it, it just seemed a bit. And this is completely that had nothing to do with technology. It just seemed to be a bit surrealistic. They had people, you know, um, socially spaced out. You know, you know, five or six feet. A lot of golf claps. You know, it it just didn't seem. Yes. It, didn't seem it didn't seem to have a lot of the emotion and and energy that the Apple events have. You know, and the Apple events, of course, now have gone completely virtual. And they're you know they're we've talked about this before. They're very. Hollywoodish, you know, in their production value, but they, it just seemed a little bit of an infomercial like to me. But you know, that's me. You know, I probably there's probably lots of people at Google that would disagree. Yeah, they with didn't that. have the production values of an Apple event with the yeah the jump cuts and the drone shots and everything. It was zooming people zooming step up on a stage and what looked like a really pleasant space. Right. So interesting, interesting stuff. Um, uh, this is a topic that you wanted to talk about, uh, Stuart, and that is um, Apple's uh, 3D and VR um, activity. And, you know, you posed a question, um, being the provocative guy that you are, is VR a black hole? I mean, I, I, I maybe said in a different way, you know, VR, we, everybody's been talking about AR and VR for years. There's been lots of manifestations in certain niche environments. It's been successful. It's not a broad mainstream capability quite yet where you know hundreds of millions of people are using it so do you think apple is the company that's going to take vr mainstream you know while others have failed i think that's what they think and here here's my issue i'm usually a fan of technology figuring out what users want and i mean that's been true throughout technology history but the VR thing got me puzzled enough because everybody was predicting, you know, Ready Player One, that VR was going to be the next big thing. And it sort of just, it just sat there and died. I mean, there are obviously advocates for it and there's a lot of people making money, but it has not become the huge mainstream sort of new tech, new cool thing that I think the industry expected and what I think Apple expects. And I, I, I actually was I, I spent some time pondering this, and I actually came upon something that I contacted some behavioral psychologists about. I don't think people like to put things on their faces. Throughout tech history, yeah. there's been three different attempts at 3D. There's been these personal movie viewing devices that Epson is still making and a couple of other companies have tried to do to convince you that on an airplane you should put on this headset. And VR is part of that. And I think the problem, we were talking about 2001 before and the whole prehistoric man part. The thing that kept coming up was the the um, are the er humans living in caves with their eyes wide open, afraid of what was out there. And I think a lot of the psychological issue with putting on a VR helmet is cutting yourself off and putting yourself into the proverbial dark, 
cutting yourself off from the rest of the world. And I think there's this very primal instinct that humans have not to do that. Regardless of what's coming through those goggles, we have seemed to resisted cutting off all of our senses from the real world. Um, I think there's something that can be talked about in terms of LSD and sort of psychedelia and losing that level of control, but still being a part of the world. So I think that there's going to be, even if Apple does it well, that there's still going to be this something, which is why I think people get nauseous, why people can't do VR for any more than 20 minutes at a time. I think there is this visceral, primal fear Hmm. of putting yourself in the proverbial dark or metaphorical dark. That's interesting. Rob, your thoughts. Uh, also, VR yeah, headsets yeah, yeah, cost yeah, a lot. You know, you yeah, can yeah, address yeah, the yeah, issues, yeah. the bar factor. But, uh, you know, if you want to have a realistic experience that doesn't upset your inner ears, you need, you know, really fast refresh rate, really high resolution. That's yes. an expensive display. That's two expensive displays. Um, and, and meanwhile, most other things in computing, I've gotten pretty cheap. So, you know, if you think it's going to be tough to sell people a foldable phone at 1500 bucks, when at least you take that everywhere you would take your current phone today, what about a VR headset that you, you can't walk down the sidewalk wearing, but otherwise you'll walk into a lamppost or in my neighborhood, step on a bunch of cicadas right now. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, and what does it actually get you? What, you know, the, the fact that the porn people haven't, made a big business out of this suggests that maybe it's not all that or have they i don't know i not going to no they haven't that's that's an excellent point i was actually having this conversation with a a fellow tech friend of mine a, a couple of days ago on this whole porn thing those of us who were old enough gee i think that's all of us remembered that the video recording industry in the dcr business was almost completely supported by either Jane Fonda or porn. The magazines we all work for had these very thick porn sections that a lot of the magazines actually wrapped up so you couldn't just rifle through them on, on the newsstand. And the same thing with DVD, the, the porn purveyors really took advantage of a lot of the, the capabilities of DVD, like the Zoom and the point of view stuff that mainstream um, Hollywood never even touched and the fact that the porn industry hasn't gone anywhere near this i think that's a great point that the fact that the porn industry hasn't what we would have expected to really dive into vr i think is really telling about where this technology may or may not be going well i want to transition to our last topic and i didn't think the topic of porn was going to come up on the uh, on the podcast so guys thank you for that the, the, the only point i would make well, let's for that matter <laughs> Well, the only point I would make is I think the um, for any capability to become mainstream, you have to be whatever it is, you know, not this is just not confined to AR or VR. You have to be constantly using it to the point that uh, Rob made is that the technology, whatever Apple does, it will have to be designed in such a way that it's with you all the time. It can't be a gadget that, oh, I want to do an AR VR thing and I like I'm going to a ball game, you know, and I want to and I want to put it on. I think it, and I don't know what the answer is, but I do know that for it to become mainstream, for it to become repetitive, where people just do it, you know, use it without even thinking about it, it's going to have to be mobile based in some way, which I believe that was part of Apple's strategy. But they're certainly doing things from a technology standpoint, from an ingredient standpoint in their phones to 
make these devices as ready as they possibly can be for the advent of uh, this capability. But will people want to walk around with goggles? I don't think so. Uh, um, maybe glasses, and I, I'm, not, I'm not even sure glasses probably are, probably will be suitable for you know a bulk of the population. But it's going to be really um, it's going to be interesting, and, I, and I'm pretty sure we're going to hear a lot more about this at uh, WWC. Uh, last but not least, this should be a quickie, but it's a fun one. Um, lots of rumors over the last couple of days that MGM may get purchased by Amazon, you know. So, um, Stuart, real quick, give us 30 seconds and what were your thoughts on that? On that? Well, I, my biggest concern is what does this do to Turner Classic Movies, which I believe somebody, I think some Turner either owns or leases. I mean, that's a huge piece of I'm the TCM library. So I don't know if Amazon is going to want to be in competition with TCM. So I'm, I, I, I don't know because I don't think the deal has gone through yet. But as somebody who watches TCM all the time, it's great background stuff. If if somehow they lose the um, the MGM library, I think that's not good for TCM, certainly not good for those of us who like to watch TCM. Don't you think this is as much of a move uh, to prevent somebody else from getting the content? You know, so who knows what price they're probably going to pay a pretty, a pretty dollar. Well, I mean, there's there's also the issue of does that mean they're buying James Bond? You know, which, um, and so I mean, there's I think there's a huge stretch of issues here. But knowing Amazon, they're going to want to have control of it, and whether or not that's a a good thing for us, and whether or not we're going to have to pay. Not that I ever want to see Gone with the Wind again, but uh, The Wizard of Oz or, you know, that, those sorts of things. You know, where what happens to those, to that content once it's in Amazon's walled garden, what they're going to do with it. So I, I don't know. And I don't think anybody has the answer to that except the negotiators. Right. Rob, some closing thoughts on that topic before we sign off. You know, if Amazon does buy MGM, at least it's not a telecom company because telecom companies buying entertainment, that's just the kiss of death. That, that's <laughs> doomed. So not objectively doomed is an upgrade. But yeah, I don't know why they would want to do that. Why is this part of, you know, Prime Video is nice, but we're all buying Amazon Prime so we can get stuff put in front of our houses really quickly. And right. video is sort of a second order benefit. Uh, I would imagine that, you know, how many different Tom Clancy theme series has Amazon put on various streaming screens? You can now, now have just as many James Bond derived series. Right. But yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how it adds up. And, and the regulatory picture is questionable. Well, again, that's what's so fun about being in our space is, you know, you, you, know, you pick up the, um, your iPad or you pick up your uh, notebook and you read some of these tech stories and, wow, yet, yet another interesting episode of who's going to buy who, you know. From a, and I, I was looking at, you know, a lot of this, as I was, you know, kind of um, inferring to Stuart, a lot of this is really about, um, you know, if I have to buy this asset because I don't want my competitor to buy this asset, you know, that's really what it boils down to. And, well, uh, it's a Yankee thing. Remember how the Yankees, they would buy <laughs> players who, who beat them all the time. Oh. Mediocre players, but they just bought them from other teams, so they wouldn't get hit by them. Okay, just for, just for, just for that, I'm going to give you the horn right there. I had that sound effect really in the, in the um, in my uh, in quiver here, right of the fire. I don't know where John is. John is somewhere in uh, uh, in the internet. Uh, 
He's in low Earth orbit, right? Exactly right. Having a conversation with Elon Musk about Starlink. But um, uh, Rob uh, Stewart, thank you for taking the time to join me for today's podcast. For our viewing and listening audience, please subscribe to the Smart Tech Check podcast on YouTube and Apple Podcasts. And follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And until next time, have a great week.